take your Bible and turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 4. As you're turning there, um, go back for just a second to Psalm 33, where Jason had us a few minutes ago as he was praying. Just turn to Psalm 33 for just a second. I want you to pay a particular attention to verses 10 and 11. Let me find it in mine here. So verses 10 and 11 of Psalm 33 said, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Then verse 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. I read a book um, while I was on vacation, A Burning in My Bones. It's the biography of Eugene Peterson. Um, Eugene Peterson, you may remember him from translating The Message. The Message is a, kind of a contemporary, if you will, um, translation of the Bible. Peterson worked on it for many years. He said he wrote it, he translated it, so that the, the, the people in his church, he pastored uh, Christ Our Redeemer Church in a little town up in Maryland, outside of Washington. He pastored that church for 32 years. And he said he translated that, he wrote the message for the truck drivers and the farmers, for those in his church who just needed to hear the word in their own vernacular, if you will, in their own language. So he translated all of the Psalms, memorized the Psalms and translated them. Um, here's how he translated those verses I just read, verses 10 and 11. He said, God takes the wind out of Babel pretense. By Babel, think about the Tower of Babel. Think about the pretense that went into building that tower. And, and you know, in, in the ESV, as we read it, it talked about the council of the nations. So Peterson says, he says, he takes the wind out of Babel pretense. He shoots down the world's power schemes. Our ESV version says the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. The message said God's plan for the world stands up and all his designs are made to last. Later on, he says this down in the former part, down in verses 16. No king succeeds with a big army alone. No warrior wins by brute strength. Horsepower is not the answer. No one gets by on muscle alone. Is that true? The culture of our world and the, the plans and purposes of man sometimes would seem very contrary to that. Peterson wrote in his biography, he said, The pastor's essential job, the pastor's essential job above every other responsibility is to stand amid this beleaguered, beautiful world and point one direction and say one word, God. Peterson said we live in what he calls a God-alive world. And that's why the Christian act of worship, he wrote, is essential. More than our profuse words, we need to hear God speak. More than our presumptions or our agendas or our visions, we need God's way and God's wisdom. We need God's way and God's wisdom, guys, because that is not our normal way. That is not our normal tendency. Our sinful bent, our human sinful tendency 
is to let the cultural momentum and gravity, the current of the culture, just take us along. And we begin to think and act, see and respond to the way the culture and the world around us would train us to do that. Contrary to that is what we see throughout the Bible, leading all the way up to the end, but Paul makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 1, I think, in a way that's really profound and very relevant to the text we're going to see and that we have been seeing here in 2 Samuel. God, he says, has made known to us the mystery of his will. You want to know what God's will is? Here it is. This is God's will. According to his purpose, he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, Paul says, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things in the earth. That is God's will. That is God's plan. That is God's purpose. He's going to unite and is uniting all things together in Christ, all things in heaven and all things on the earth. That's his purpose. That's his will. That's what he's doing. Now, how is God going to bring this about? How is he going to accomplish this? Well, what we have seen over these last three chapters of 2 Samuel is how he's not going to do it. God will not bring about his plans and his purposes through political maneuvering. That won't do it. He will not bring about his plans and his purpose through man's political ambitions or his own personal ambitions. It's not going to happen that way. God's not going to bring his plans and his purposes about by man's unrighteousness, by our conspiring or by our violence. We're going to see that in today's passage. God will not use those things to bring about his kingdom. They will not hasten it. But hear this, they will not stop it either. God's plans and purposes will come about. That's the lesson that we're learning from David's life. God uses the actions of men, listen, both righteous and unrighteous, to bring about his purposes. But he holds us accountable for those unrighteous actions. We will answer for that. His judgment is absolutely certain. So the context for what we've been in for the last two or three weeks begins there in 2 Samuel chapter 2, where it says, David grows stronger and stronger And the family of Saul or the house of Saul grows weaker and weaker. That's what we see happening here in these chapters. We come to the end of this little episode here in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel. Now there's some characters in 2 Samuel chapter 4. We're going to see them laid out for us there. In fact, let's let's just go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to read it to you in just a second. There's two brothers who are kind of at the center of this story here. Okay, And these two brothers are like a lot of people that we've seen in Samuel thus far who believe that David is the kind of a king who is ambitious, the kind of a king who is power hungry, and the kind of a king who is going to reward those who help further his pursuits. However they bring it about, he's going to reward them. That's what these two brothers we're going to see here assumed. It was a deadly, indeed costly Mistake. Because that's not the kind of king we have. They were wrong about David. They miscalculated. David lives kind of what Peterson said with this God alive vision. 
In fact, Peterson said this about this passage in a little commentary. It's not a full commentary. He just wrote a little on the side. He says, they have no idea that David lives in a God-alive world. And the failure of imagination cost them their lives. Understanding God and his ways is practical knowledge. It can save your life. It can. And that's kind of what we see here. All right? So there's three things I want to point out in this. And it's not a long passage. It's, it's, there's not a whole lot here in one sense. It's pretty straightforward. There is no security in the kings and kingdoms of this world. They will fail and fall, period. There's no security there. Secondly, we're going to see that there's no limit to the depth of man's unrighteousness. There's no bottom to it, it seems. It seems to get worse and worse. But regardless of the reason or the excuse that we might use, the end is never, never justified by unrighteous means. We'll see that as well. And then finally, we're going to see there toward the end that there is no escaping the righteous justice of God. But, praise God, there is a substitute for us who takes that wrath, who takes that punishment for us. So that's, that's kind of the direction we're going with this. Let's see it together. Turn there at 2 Samuel chapter 4. Follow along as I read it. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron. So that's what we saw in chapter 3, okay? Abner had been killed. He'd been killed out of an act of vengeance. All right, so he dies. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Benah. The name of the other was Rahav. In, in the Hebrew, the H-A-B kind of ends, it has the phonetic sounding of a V, so it's Rahav. Sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin from Beroth, for Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. And the Barothites fled to Gidom and have been sojourners there to this day. So to get a little background there, you'd have to go back to, go back to the book of Joshua. When they're dividing up the promised land, then this particular portion that used to be known as this land of the Barothites was given to the tribe of Benjamin. So some commentators wonder, why did these brothers do what we're about to see them do? And they're thinking, well, they remembered that this land used to belong to them, and now it doesn't. Uh, maybe, but I'm, I'm not on that bandwagon. I don't think that's the reason we see them do what they do. But that just describes who they are. Verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. This author is a great writer. Well, of course he is. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, so you've read those novels where that thing is going on, and you wonder, what is that? Like, one writer I saw said, this is like when the main character comes at the beginning of the story and lays a loaded gun down on the table and then walks away. And, you know, sooner or later, that gun's going to come into play in this story someplace. Well, Mephibosheth is going to come into play later on. But the author decides to let us know about him now. And I'll, I'll talk about why. So, verse 5. Now, the sons of Ramon, the Barothite, 
Rahav and Banah set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rahav and Banah, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rahav and Banah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Probably should have given a warning before reading it. Like this is this is at best PG thirteen. There's body parts all over the place. But there's a point to that. Because these body parts cut off and dismembered and laying around are a picture of the kingdoms of this world when God puts his king on the throne. They're there for a purpose. Man, I already took one of the best lines out of the end of the sermon and put it at the beginning. So, whatever. You might hear that again. But as we see this narrative unfolding, let's go back and just look at the beginning of it. Because there are some applications to make. It's pretty straightforward, is it not? I mean, it kind of just, it's right there before us in all of its gore and ugliness. But first, remember, there is no security in the kings and kingdoms of this world. They will ultimately fail and fall. That's what the author is telling us here in these first four verses. Because here's the picture of Ishbosheth, the king that Abner has put on the throne, contesting David on the throne, Ishbosheth being the son of Saul. And it says that when he finds out that his commander, his strong man, is dead, literally his arms just fell at his side. He has no Strength. He has no energy. He's a weakling. He can do nothing. The author tells us not only is he worthless in that regard and there's nothing he can do, then Israel, the country who was looking to him, those nations who were looking to him, literally in the Hebrew, their hearts trembled like leaves in the wind yesterday. They have no strength either. Because the one that they were looking to to lead them, whether it was Abner or Ishbosheth, they're both dead now. So that leader that they had put their trust in is dead, so the nation has no courage and no heart. Skip down to verse 4, and there is one descendant left, it seems. Jonathan had a son, 
And this son, when he was five years old and got the news that Saul and Jonathan had died in battle, his nurse was running and fleeing because they feared for their lives, and he fell and became a cripple. So here's, some writers call this like Old Testament sarcasm. Here's the strength of Saul's kingdom now. Ishbosheth is dead and headless. Israel is without any heart. They're trembling. And the only one who might could, in some stretch of the imagination, be ready to take the throne is physically unable to do it. He's crippled. That's, that's the strength. Oh, wait, there's two other. And here in the middle is this picture of these two guys who are head of Ishbosheth's raiding party. So they're marauders, okay? These are just, these are just hired thugs. But that's the strength of Saul's kingdom now. It has failed. It has fallen literally apart. And that's a picture of what happens in this world eventually. I get that from going over and reading the end in Revelation chapter 18. My mind was drawn to that this week as I, as I went there. I was thinking about here's Israel, these nations that have, have, have looked to Abner and Ishbosheth for their leadership and for their guidance, and they're dead now. In Revelation chapter 18, we're reminded there of the fall of Babylon. Remember what Peterson said about the, the schemes of Babel? Well, that picture from early Genesis is carried through Scripture all the way of this picture of men's kingdoms and their ability and their power. And in the end, it's, it's, it's pictured in Babylon. It's pictured in what the book of Revelation tells us is this whore who has prostituted herself and those who follow her have prostituted themselves. And in chapter 18, finally the culmination comes to an end. And you hear all of the host of heaven Praising God and singing, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And yet those who put their trust in her, those who had had relied on her, it says three times in this chapter 18. And I'm not going to go back and look at it. But it just says, in a single hour, the judgment has come on her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. And they will see the smoke of her burning. It says later on, they weep and they wail over her. And then it says later on in the chapter, the same thing. They cry, they weep and they wail over this one to whom they've trusted who is now destroyed. That'll happen. If our confidence is in the kings and the kingdoms of this world. But the story goes on. So there's this picture of these two brothers. And what we see here is that there's no limit to the depravity. There's no limit to the depths of man's unrighteousness. And there is no end, it seems, to our creativity in trying to justify it. Because they they do that. They take their sinful acts and wrap it up in theology and see how it flies. But it doesn't. It doesn't fly well. Look at what happened. So they come and they set out in the heat of the day. They come to Ishbosheth's house. Now, we, we read it and go, well, clearly they had a motive in place. The author tells us something about this idea in verse 6 that they came to get wheat. And, and I don't, we don't really know what that is. Some commentators say, well, obviously Ishbosheth had some kind of storage place in his house where there was wheat. 
One of the old Jewish pieces of literature said that there was a woman there responsible for that who was kind of guarding it and serving as a door person. And, and for some reason, she's not there is, is the way one historical piece puts it. But for whatever reason, there's nobody there. They seem to come straight in. And as they come into the house, they get into the midst of it. And there is Ishbosheth taking his siesta. Which is common in the, in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. There he is taking his siesta. And they're not there for wheat. It says that in verse 6, they stabbed him in the stomach. And then it seems to give us a little more detail in verse 7. Alright? They came into his house. As he lay on his bed, they struck him. The, next, the previous verse says in the stomach. They killed him. And then they took his head. They beheaded him and took his head and went away and traveled all night to bring it to David. Now, some of this should begin to sound familiar to us. I mean, all the way through this section of 2 Samuel, and even in 1 Samuel, there's been a constant parade of positioning and politicking and using our, our, our influence. There's influence peddling that's going on there. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of killing. And here it seems there's just more of the same. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Well, in some ways, that's true. There has been a lot of... Abner was killed. He was killed with a... Just similar to how he had killed earlier in a previous chapter in battle, though. You remember the blunt end of his spear went into the stomach. Abner was killed, stabbed in the stomach as an act of revenge. And here, these fellows take Ishbosheth's life by stabbing him in the stomach. And what's up with verses 6 and 7 kind of telling us the same thing, except, well, in the Hebrew, in Hebrew literature, this is very common. It's, it's, it's true in Genesis, right? We have one, one account of creation. In the next chapter, we have a more detailed account of creation, another aspect of it. It's not uncommon. We'll see more of this in Samuel. So they kill him in verse 6 and escape. In verse 7, it's more detail about how they kill him, take his head, and escape. So this is all going on. But then they get to David, and here it says, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. So they stand there with his head. Hands covered with blood. Here's the son of your enemy. He sought your life. And God has worked through us, they say. God has been faithful. God has avenged my Lord the King on this day. And so there they are. Hands covered with blood. And in some way they must have told the story because later on David is going to recount how they went in, found Ishbosheth laying there, and killed him on his bed in his house in the middle of the day. So in some way they relate this story, and I think their whole intent all along is similar to what we've seen before. The Amalekite, when he brought news of Saul's death, thought, this will be good news to David. Maybe I'll get a good job in his kingdom. And here these two thugs come, thinking I think the same thing. That David's going to be pleased with what's going on. That David's like all the other leaders of this world. You do what you have to do to further my cause and I'll bless it. But they misjudged David. Misjudged him badly. You see, their perspective of... Notice what they said to David. They saw David the same way Saul did, right? Saul saw David as his enemy. David never saw Saul as his enemy. He didn't see him that way. He saw him as the Lord's anointed. 
These brothers come to David with this head in their hands. And they come seeing David's kingdom and his life and all of those things the same way that Saul did. Saul sought David's life. David never sought Saul's life, did he? He, he, he did everything he could to never raise his hand to Saul, right? Because he was God's anointed. He feared the Lord. He would not do this. So these two brothers did not understand David, and they did not understand God's purposes in and through the life of David. One writer said, they come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting the latter to magically bleach the former. There's a lot of that. Following the world's ways, the world's strategies, the world's ends. We'll wrap it in a Bible verse or the Christian flag and think that God's going to be okay with it. But he's not. They're motivated by personal ambition, not God's purposes. They frame their actions in line of the culture's theology and not God's. And David is not buying it. (laughs) That's an understatement. So look at how the little passage ends. There's no escape from the righteous justice of God. So David answered Rahab and Banah, his brother, in verse 9, and said, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, there's David's God. And there's the actions of David's God on his behalf. He just lays it out for them. And here's the reason that what David had done in the past is what he did. He never sought Saul's life. He never rushed in to take the throne ahead of God's purposes and timing. David never seemed to get ahead of God in a pattern, okay? There are times where he did with certain instances. But by his pattern, by his consistency, he was trusting God and waiting on God. And so he could say, God has redeemed my life. I've been trusting him. I've never needed to act out of line. I've never needed to do these things because God has promised the kingdom to me. He's waited on God and he's trusted in God. And that's been the hallmark of David's life up until this point of time. And he says, what does he say about my God? He has redeemed me out of every adversity. Go back in 1 Samuel just for a second. Flip back to an earlier chapter in David's life. Familiar one, chapter 17. Here's what David is recounting. And here's something that's probably important to remember. Lots of times in these narrative accounts in the Old Testament, the word redeemed and the word delivered, two different words, but they're going to carry the same meaning. So when David says, God has redeemed my life out of every adversity, he also then says, God has delivered me. Out of every adversity, right? So they can carry that same meaning. For instance, as he comes to Saul when he's getting ready to face Goliath, he says, the Lord has delivered me. I'm in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 37. David said, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine." So God just, David is just recounting God's faithfulness to him. And then when he gets on the field of battle and stands before this big Philistine giant, 
He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. So David has lived and fought and led thus far with this pattern of trusting God, trusting his purposes, trusting his plans, trusting his timing and not trying to take things into his own hand. And that's this redeeming love that David talks about. We'll see more of it in just a second as I make application. This redeeming love, there's, there's nothing like it. There's also nothing like the justice of God. And that's a picture of what we see here, okay? It's, just a, it's a picture of God's justice. David brings this justice about swiftly, and he brings it about publicly. And I think both of those are important in this, all right? What you see here in David's response to these brothers, yes, it's violent. Yes, it's quick. Yes, in some ways it's gruesome. And it's held up in some way there in verse 30. I don't think it's talking about that they hung up their hands and their feet. I think that's a picture as he hung up their bodies without hands and feet, that those who would go against God's king are not going to have the ability to do it. Their hands aren't going to be able to do it and their feet aren't going to be able to do it. And their lives will be taken. I think that's kind of the picture of what we see here. Over in Exodus chapter 6, God spoke through Moses and said, Here's what you're to say to the people of Israel. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. Other places he uses the word redeem you from slavery to them. Here he says it, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. One of the things that happens in Revelation chapter 18 and again in chapter 19 is that the destruction of Babylon is public. And it's a point of praise. God is worshipped as the smoke of her rises up. So here's a just king portraying for us a just God who will not let blood guilt go. And that's what this is. This isn't an act in the, in the heat of battle. This is just simply murder. Murder on what David said was a righteous man, righteous in that he was made in God's image. Here David is seeing Ishbosheth through the eyes that God has. And so David pronounces this judgment and it's carried out. And it's carried out swiftly. So how, what are we to do with this? How, how, how can we make application from this final section here before we get into what is the better parts in some ways? I mean, we're about to get here into David being anointed king in chapter 5. And, man, it's going to be good to get into some of these sections. But what do we do with this? Well, it's easy. Okay? It's easy to look at our world, to look around us at what's going on culturally, globally, and go, what a stinking mess. It seems like I have that conversation every day. I had it yesterday with a brother. Man, what's this world coming to? wish I had a nickel for every time I've heard that. What's this world coming to? Right? I mean, it, it's a mess. And it's easy for us to forget that we live in, as Peterson says, a God-alive world. 
that, that he is alive and that God is working his purposes to unite all things together in heaven and on earth in Christ. Right? Somebody amen that because that's where this is all going. And yet as we look at the news, maybe we need less of that. And as we listen to the culture, maybe we do need less of that. Then we forget that this is a God alive world. And yet through the picture of this faithful king, this just king, who points us to the faithful king, Jesus, to our just king, Jesus, then we can look around at this messy place and with Job say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day, He's going to stand upon the earth. We live in the light of that reality. We live in the, rea- the light of the reality of what Isaiah said in chapter 47, 4. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name. The Holy One of Israel. We hear what Titus Records in the book of Titus, as Paul wrote in chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 14, Who gave himself for us To redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. I put in your sermon outline this parallel passage in Romans chapter 3. Turn over there. As we read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, especially these most recent chapters, it's easy for us to think, man, these political Actions, these personal ambitions, this power influence, this all these schemes that we see going on here. None of them work to further God's kingdom, and yet God seems to work through them to bring about His purposes. It's mysterious. The problems in this world are not military problems. The problems in this world are not political. The problems in this world are not economic. The problem in this world is not injustice. Those are symptomatic of the problem. The world's problem is sin. Sin. And there is one and only one answer to the world's lostness. And it is God's anointed king. And listen to what Paul says in Romans Look at chapter 3. Start, start down in verse 21. We could go back and just be reminded that Rahab and Banah and Abner and Joab and all of those who have come before them are just a picture of what we see there in the beginning part of Romans chapter 3. That there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. They have all turned aside and all become worthless. That's us, guys. Every single one of us. There's no one righteous. Not one. So the answer is not going to come horizontally. But now, in verse 21, 
The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a wrath-averting Redeemer by his blood to be received by faith. That's that's the gospel. That we are all like Rahav and Banah. We are all in our own way and in our own little world. Rebelling against our king and our creator. And there's no depth that we will not go in our sin. To try to be the king of our own world. And God in his love did not leave us in that rebellion. Mark his justice. It will be swift and it will be sure. It will be visible. But God has given a redeemer. A substitute. Someone to to rescue us out of that. When the fullness of time comes. Came. Paul says. God sent forth his son. As a gift. Monday night, I was at the state convention. Man, it was a, a great night. There was a commissioning service for the International Bishop Board. Paul Chitwood, the president of the IMB, was there. And it was, it was unlike any other commissioning service that's ever been. They've never had one like this because everyone that was on the stage or everyone whose face was hidden for security reasons, or everyone who was videoed from the MLC, the Missionary Learning Center in Virginia, everyone who was on that stage and being sent was from North Carolina, members of North Carolina Baptist churches. It was incredible. There were 70 some of them being sent out to the nations. There were retired couples who were going to North Africa. There were single college students, men and women, who were going to Central Asia. There were people going to Europe. They were going to Sub-Saharan Africa. They were going to North Africa. They were going to the Middle East. They were going to Thailand. They are going to Japan. They are going to South America. They are going to Southeast Asia, going to Central Asia. There was one report. There was one couple there who had, who had left a career, gone to um, a, an island in South, Southeast Asia where there were no believers. It was an unreached, unreached part of the world, an unreached people group 10 years ago. Never been engaged. Worked there for years before they saw their first convert. But there was one house church planted. And then another. And then another. And they just... They were overjoyed at how faithful God had been to plant these house churches who were working to plant other churches. What is our pursuit What is our purpose? What are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our money? What are we doing with the gifts and the abilities that God has given us? The world's problem that we've seen in 2 Samuel is sin manifesting itself in all kinds of different ways. And there's only one answer to this lostness, and it's Jesus. And there's only one way that Jesus has determined that that message is going to get out. And that's through his church. Who would have thought that? 
God, write it across the heavens. God, do, do something extraordinary and crazy. That'll get people's attention. Oh, wait. He brought somebody back from the dead to do that. And he gave that resurrected life to losers like me. So that message would go forth. So that's how we should be spending our time and our money and our energies. We should be praying. There's nothing greater for you to do as a young person than to commit your life to ministry, to full-time service for the Lord, whether it's in a pulpit like this or whether it's in some capacity as an elder, as a teacher, as a woman's leader, whether it's going on the mission field. There's nothing greater you could do with your lives. There's nothing greater that, that we could do with our families or with our resources. Praying and giving and going. We throw that out all the time, don't we? Those aren't just words. It's easy to say. But praying is, is a statement of my dependency and of God's promise. And of reliance on the one who God has decided would be the intercessor between me and him. And it's Jesus. Praying is work, but it's a gift. And it's a, it's a measure of, it's a, it's, a, it's a means of grace. Giving. That's what God did for us, right? That's what he continues to do for us and going. Yeah, there's 3,072, I think, is the number now. We have it on our posters. We're already praying and planning for our international missions offering that comes in December. Like JT said, we got some catching up to do here just with our regular missions giving, just with those things. But I'm not talking about just going to sub-Saharan Africa. I'm just take the gospel to our neighbors and our friends. There was one speaker this weekend, or this past week in Greensboro at the meeting, and I'll, I'll wrap it up with this. He's, he's from a community not far from here. His, his daughter is a senior in high school. She's got a lot of friends she plays, plays sport with. One young man that she's a friend with, they were just, you know, texting back and forth, and she said something in a text he, he was relating to us about church. And she made a reference to Jesus. And about her life being committed to Christ. And, and that young man responded back said, I don't even really know what you're talking about. That young man had no frame of reference for anything that she was talking about. Listen, guys, the unreached people groups of the world may be next door. We, we cannot assume that people know what we're talking about when we talk about who Jesus is. And about our primary problem not being what's going on in Washington, but what's going on in our hearts because of sin. And God has placed us here for that purpose. I'm so thankful, and we all are together, I know, that God's king, God's purposes will stand. We rest in that. And we go in that truth. Let's pray. As we bow and as we get ready to close this service, it's not just chill out for a second. It's not time to get your stuff ready. Have you put your faith and your trust in this King? King Jesus? The one who gave his life so that you could be ransomed and redeemed out of a life of sin 
so that you don't have to fear the just judgment of God? Have you put your faith and trust in the one who Jesus, who God sent? He who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might receive in exchange the very righteousness of God. If by faith you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, have you put your life in the hands of this king? I pray that you'll do that. And church, are are we ready to step out in faith, in bold confidence, with a kingdom perspective, with a perspective that says we live in a God-alive world? Father, we pray for that. We pray for the salvation of those who need it, and we pray for the truth, Lord, the, the joy, the the enthusiasm, the exuberance, and the confidence that should be ours because you do reign and rule. And your purposes are being accomplished. God, we thank you for that today. Father, we pray that you'll take this word and that you'll bear fruit in the lives of your people. And that this community, Lord, would be impacted and changed by the gospel being lived out and proclaimed by folks from this church and by your church in this community. And Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.